0: Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. Longtime Supreme Court reporter Joan Piskubic joins us this week to talk about the court in its new age of a conservative supermajority. Her new book is titled Nine Black Robes. Through extensive reporting, she provides a look at the -the behind-the-scenes negotiations that the justices engage in when deciding cases. She also talks about the people who advanced the 40-year goal of a conservative majority and about the Supreme Court's landmark Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Our conversation will begin in just a moment.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Longtime Supreme Court reporter, Joan Piskubic, your latest book on the court is titled Nine Black Robes. What's the story that you tell? It's a group portrait this
2: time. You know, I'd done past biographies, going all the way back to 2005 with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, then Antonin Scalia, then a political history of Sonia Sotomayor, and then, of course, the Chief Justice of the United States in 2019. And this time, I wanted to draw back and give a group portrait of the court during a very difficult time for the court, during the Trump years and the immediate aftermath. I had begun detecting Different kinds of behavior, tensions among the justices during the Trump years. And I'd started to document that. And as I was working on that story, uh, those stories for CNN, I pitched this book, you know, as I said, a group portrait this time, never knowing that it would culminate in the Dobbs ruling reversing nearly 50 years of abortion rights and Roe v. Wade. But then when I went back to add this ending to this story that I was telling, I realized that I essentially had the narrative arc of how we got the Dobbs ruling already in this book. So, as I said, Susan, it began with a look at the Trump effect on the court, and it culminates in this major reversal of precedent.
0: One of the statistics that you cite in the book is the Gallup uh, tracking poll of uh, public opinion on the court. Mm-hmm. And since 2002, uh, they've been doing it for about 20 years, and we have it here, it's essentially reversed itself, uh, and uh, noting that that was really not very long after the very divisive Bush v. Gore decision that they began it. And yet at that point, the uh, approval rating was 62% approved, 25% disapproved. Now. approve of the court, 58% disapprove, an inversion. What's behind that? You know, I think that's really important. Uh,
2: You know, I've been watching this court for decades and I've known it's been on a conservative trajectory, but something is different. It's not just that this is a a conservative supermajority and it's not just that it's dominated by six Republican appointees who are conservative because you have all different types of conservatives. on the federal bench and in America. But this brand of conservatism is interested in rolling back precedents, and that has struck obviously the American public, and people are responding in those polls. They People don't seem to have as much faith in the integrity of the judiciary, uh, faith in the fact that the rulings are not political. and you know this as well as i do beginning in 2010 when we had a switch in the court membership when justice john paul stevens who was a gerald ford appointee left and he was succeeded by elena kagan a uh, president obama appointee suddenly we had all the liberal justices had been appointed by democratic presidents and all the conservatives by republicans so you know there was much more of a political Division there. And, you know, from 2010 until I'd say uh, 2020, people would note that division, but it didn't seem as apparent as it did, frankly, in June when the justices reversed Roe v. Wade. And because because I again this goes back to Donald Trump when Donald Trump was running for office in 2016 he said, "I will only appoint justices who will reverse Roe v Wade." So that made the political contrast much starker and he was right he appointed three justices who joined with two other Republican appointees to reverse Roe v Wade and I think when you refer to those polls and there are plenty of times when I don't put stock in poll numbers but those polls there're multiple polls not just Gallup certainly have documented what you're referring to
0: the court always seems to insert or try to insulate itself from American society contemporary society but yeah. How much a concern are these public approval ratings to the justices, or at least the chief? Well, I
2: think you're right to single out Chief Justice John Roberts, because he has always been concerned with the integrity of the court. And I remember vividly something he said to you, and I think it was in 2009. It's a comment I've, I've actually incorporated into a couple of books now, where he said, the thing that the American public should know about us is that we are not political. We leave, you know, whatever our uh, partisan affiliation was at the door. We, the the court, uh, the American public should see us as non-political, and even he d- doesn't even like, you know, so many ideological tags either. And I remember he said to you, if the American public doesn't like how we rule, you know, there really isn't anything they can do about it. This is we are trying to be above politics the politics of the day, but he is concerned. He's very concerned. So much has happened since 2009, especially since 2005 when he was first appointed, where you have all these, you have the rulings, for starters, you know, rulings that break so severely among along partisan lines. And then you have all these questions about the justices and their behavior and who they might be answering to. And As you know in the book, I devoted a whole chapter called the Triumvirate to Senator Mitch McConnell, uh, the Republican leader who controlled so much of who got through the confirmation process, White House counsel Don McGahn, and Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society has been so effective at helping to screen appointees for the Supreme Court. And as Don McGahn has said many times publicly, it's not that the Trump administration outsourced it to the Federalist Society, it was insourced. They were, as he said, inside the castle. Members of the Federalist Society, including Don McGahn, inside the White House, really wanted a particular kind
0: of appointee and got it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to divert from the, talking about the book for just a minute, because as you and I are talking this morning, there's a big story breaking about one of the justices, Justice right. Thomas. It, it comes from ProPublica, and it's about uh, him for many years, along with his wife Jenny Thomas, accepting very expensive trips uh, from a real estate magnate, uh, Har- Harlan uh, Crow. And I, I'm wondering overall, not so much to talk about that, because we haven't seen all the contours right. of that story, but adding to that public perception of the court, A code of ethics for the people who serve on the court—is there one? What do they have? What kind of rules do they have to follow, and how does that play into the public perception? Uh,
2: That's a great question, and it's immediate. It's like, as you say, right before I came over here, I was confronted with this story. It's an excellent story, using a lot of uh, impressive reporting, talking to people at these resorts that um, Clarence Thomas visited on on this. GOP mega donors dime uh, and you're right, we don't know everything ab- about that at this point, but I can tell you what I know about inside the Supreme Court. There is no formal ethics code. The chief Justice and other justices say they just fo- they follow the uh, rules that are set for lower court judges who do have a formal ethics code. Uh, they obviously are supposed to report gifts and things of value and you know under federal law they're not supposed to take any money from anybody who could influence a case but there's a there's a gray area of who influences them and what kinds of gifts they take. Uh, one thing that would interest your viewers is that only recently uh, did the Judicial Conference, the policy making arm of the um, judiciary, amend the rules to say that personal hospitality would be um, is something that you should report when it gets into these figures, you know, personal hospitality when, you know, a private jet flies you someplace, these resort uh, vacations. So again, this is all unfolding as we're speaking now um, on Thursday, but uh, this is something that has concerned some members of the court, but there has not been unanimity among the justices of how to communicate to the public that they actually are following ethics rules, as they believe they are, Despite these kinds of stories,
0: how would the process work? Would they have to have a unanimous vote to follow well, the rules?
2: I, well, see, this is that's an excellent question because, you know, for cases you just need five. You need five justices to decide a case. But if you're going to say that uh, you that as a group we're going to impose these requirements on all of us, what if the vote is six to three? Do those three justices say, "I'm not going to follow those rules. I don't want to have to disclose some of these things," or people should trust us? You know, I. I because this has just happened, I went back to read what I've written you know, just in recent months and even weeks about the court struggles with the appearance of unethical behavior in situations. You know, I'm not just talking about receiving gifts and fancy trips. I'm talking about when they recuse from cases and conflicts of interest. And uh, my lead was something like, you know, they say, trust us. And that's what the chief has said for so long. The one time he spoke very publicly about this was in late 2011, when he put out as part of his annual uh, report to the American public about the judiciary. He said, you know, there are questions about recusals when we take ourselves out of cases, and people should know that I have—this is the chief talking—I have complete confidence in my colleagues that they do follow ethics rules and they you know, they would not sit on cases that they do not believe they should be sitting on. But there's a very real question about that. And the poll numbers you read, you know, came like last summer after the Dobbs ruling and other high-profile rulings. But now since then, there's been a drumbeat, drumbeat of stories about... Uh, who the justices associate with? The you know whether they be rich Republican interests, you know people who have very strong interests in culture war issues. You know would be against abortion rights, against gay rights, and I think that that's something that. Does concern the chief justice of the United States what he can do about it and whether he can get unanimity behind the scenes. I think that's a very real
0: question. Well, staying with Justice Thomas, has did the court ever respond to any questions about Ginny Thomas's involvement? No, no. We, uh, as, as all
2: C-SPAN viewers probably remember, you know, Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, has been quite active. Um, In conservative circles for most of her life, and she's uh, she was at the you know at President Trump's speech on January 6th. She did not march to the Capitol, but she was very involved with uh, forces that wanted to reverse the results of the 2020 election that went for uh, Joe Biden, now President Joe Biden. And she was uh, you know the January 6th Special Committee that investigated the terrible siege of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th has um, had captured texts that she was writing to Trump people saying, we've got to do something about this, we've got to do something about this. So all sorts of questions were raised about then legal cases that were coming to the Supreme Court around this time involving the 2020 election results and, and other fallout. And, you know, I and many of my colleagues uh, in the, the press corps tried to get some response from the court, from the chief, from Justice Thomas, because, you know, presumably they would have some response, but nothing, nothing. And that's the thing. They have felt that they could just keep brushing it aside. But those poll numbers that you cited at the beginning of our interview are probably only going to show more and more
0: skepticism for the judiciary as an independent branch of government. One of the lines that you wrote in the book about the court and its approach to transparency is, if we wanted you to know about it, we would have told you.
2: Oh yeah, I put that at the end. Of- my acknowledgments. That was an attitude I had felt long felt at the court. And what you're doing is you're quoting an official who said to me, when I was asking, actually, it was a very harmless question. It didn't even have to do with ethics. It was more of uh, easy procedural one that you know the answer would not have inspired uh, complaints by people. But um, the, the official said to me, if we had wanted you to know that, we would have told you. And I thought to myself in that moment, I thought, wow, I can't believe it's being said out loud to me. I've always felt that but i but the fact that they would even own that is is exactly them they think it's okay that they don't want to tell us things it's, even the easy things not like today with this huge story about clarence thomas but the easy things about how they how, you know, how many votes you might need for a certain kind of uh, uh, action behind the scenes or, or you know, procedures having to do with when they switched to um, the uh, teleconferences, when they could only uh, meet via phone during COVID. You know, things like that that I wanted to know about that were fairly straightforward. They just don't want to tell you anything.
0: That's sort of their M.O., their default position. So uh, one of the the things people will find in your book is some real understanding, despite this desire to not be transparent about how the court operates. The inner sanctum is conference, where the justices go after they've heard argument. And you can explain to viewers how secretive that process is. No one except the justices can go in that room. Uh, And you've learned a little bit, because it's presented as a very sort of civil and academic approach to discussing the cases, that it may not always be that way. Right. Uh, One thing I was glad that I could get,
2: and you know, after reporting on the court for so long and, you know, focusing on what goes on inside the conference for the purpose of this book I was glad that I was able to um, reconstruct so many cases and but that takes a lot of hard work dealing with a lot of justices and clerks and former clerks over time and since there are only nine justices it's you you have to work really hard to get multiple justices to confirm certain um, certain episodes and also to make sure you're not being too chamber centric as I try to think of it I don't want to just go with what you know say I have you know, one justice who might be very revealing, I, I still have to check with others on that because, sure. you know, we all have our perceptions and I want to make sure I'm capturing it as as much of the context as possible. So, uh, first of all, so people understand where the justices meet, and this beautiful room, the whole building, as you know, is so beautiful, but they meet in this beautiful conference room, it's pretty small, off the chambers of the Chief Justice. It's distinguished by a black marble fireplace and a portrait of the great Chief Justice John Marshall. And none of their law clerks or other kinds of assistance are allowed in. If any of them forget, you know, a book or their reading glasses or a cup of water or something like that, someone has to, you know, they have to call for it. They, not, the person knocks on the door, and the junior-most justice, uh, right now Justice uh, Jackson, will get up and retrieve that lost pair of eyeglasses and come back down. Nobody else is involved in that room. But that's where they discuss which cases to take up and then how to resolve those cases. And what has always interested me is kind of the give and take. When do people switch votes? When do people say something at conference that they then turn away from just because of the power of persuasion as they circulate drafts? Draft? So there are several cases that I've tried to reconstruct here. And then, as I'm sure you know, I've then looked at uh, when particular justices made individual pacts with each other to, uh, you know, shape cases at the margins or at some points even change outcomes uh, or to, you know, handle cases in tandem. It's not, I I will be the first to say, from what I know, it's not the kind of outright horse trading, vote trading that goes on you know, over on the Hill that we're so familiar with. It's much more subtle. And as I write, as I acknowledge right out front, sometimes law clerks don't even know of some of these packs. Sometimes it's just the two individual justices. And the one consistent thing I've discovered in dealing with so many justices over so many years is that sometimes, other justices aren't quite sure how deals were even made. They, like, they're, they're sometimes baffled at, why did that switch take place? Because sometimes, you know, little factions break off and um, decide things, but you always need five. Right. There are some instances where
0: they need six, but you usually you only need five. Does often happen through the trading of draft opinions? Yes.
2: Okay, so the, first of all, there, there are two main ways that everybody finds out what's going on. One is the clerk network. You know, you have four clerks per chambers, and um, the, some of the justices really use those clerks to find out what's going on in in different chambers. You know, what's what's happening? You know, how is you know how is the chief going to vote on something? Where which way is he leaning? And or you know, what are his trouble spots? And you know, the clerk network is uh, a very potent uh, way of finding out information among the, for the justices. I am not in the clerk network. <laughs> you know, Like in, in real time, I don't know what's being said, but I will later hear from a justice that he or she picked up something through the clerk network. So that's one way. And the other thing, and, and just so our viewers know, these law clerks are um, very highly accomplished young um, recent law Law students, they're people who' likely uh, been law clerks on uh, lower court uh, in lower court chambers, and they've been carefully screened. And you know, so they, they are super smart people that the justices use to um, uh, help write and draft opinions and do research, but they are also the source of this network. And then the other way that you just cited is written drafts. The justices communicate by memo. They send some, some of them will buttonhole each other. You know, especially those who have a little bit more political savvy. But uh, the usual way is they send around draft opinions, and I just love seeing those draft opinions. That when they end up in justices' archives, they you know they are just so rich with information of just how this process works. And in some ways, they're very stuffy, but they're also revealing. And you can see uh, one justice would say, if you amend this paragraph this way, then maybe you have my vote. If you do this. You have my vote. If you do that, maybe I'll do this. You know, so you see that going back and forth, but that's that's sort of a normal process of trying to produce an opinion that has at least five votes on it and everybody has signed on to the language.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
0: To be specific, you tell a story in the book about a, a deal, I guess, struck between the chief justice and Justice Kennedy on the Masterpiece Bake Shop case. Would you tell that story? Sure. Okay. So.
2: Everyone will remember that in 2015, the Supreme Court for the first time declared a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. It was a 5-4 vote written by uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who has since retired. But Chief Justice John Roberts was so angry about that opinion that he used his first and only dissent from the bench to complain about that. He felt that if First of all, he, he really felt like the ancient and current understanding of marriage was between one man and one woman. And he felt that if anybody was going to change that, that should be left to the states, the individual states, not to a court. And one of his lines from his, uh, that he said from the bench that day uh, in June of 2015 was, just who do we think we are? And I, I mention that only to show how angry he was about all this and how he felt the court had taken such a wrong turn. But then just two years later, in 2017, two gay rights cases come to the court. And he is motivated to try to work to reach compromises on both of those. And so he works quietly and privately with Justice Kennedy, who had been you know, opposite him for the main event back in 2015. And one involved a case that many people might not remember, uh, it was from Arkansas. Uh, two lesbian women had had a baby through artificial insemination and they wanted both of their names on the birth certificate and Arkansas policy law um, forbade that said only the actual birth mother's name could be on it and not the other the other parent and Justice Kennedy and the other liberal members of the court at the time who had been in the majority of the Obergefell ruling felt that One of the benefits of the Obergefell ruling is that same-sex couples could be treated the way heterosexual couples were treated when they had children. And so they felt that it was an open and shut case that they should reverse the Arkansas Supreme Court and say that, no, Arkansas should allow the names of both those women on on the birth certificate. So that's one. And I'll just add one other piece. They had the five votes to do that. But to do it in the summary reversal fashion that they wanted to do it, there was a there's a private rule that says you need a sixth vote for it. So they essentially needed somebody from the dissenting side, and Roberts was the most likely just because of how Roberts wanted to handle this case, and then the masterpiece cake shop case that I'll refer to, you know, in, in sort of a quieter fashion. And the the second case that you refer to is this case that we all well know now because it was subject to oral arguments, a man by the name of Jack Phillips, a baker in Colorado, had not wanted to bake a celebratory cake for two gay men who had gotten married. And he had been sanctioned by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and he had appealed to the Supreme Court saying that his right to free speech and free exercise of religion—he was a Christian who did not want to have to do um, this—had been violated. That petition sat and sat and sat week after week after week. They might have had the four votes to grant that case, which is another rule. You need just four votes to grant a case, a hearing, five votes to decide it. But John Roberts didn't want to take that case unless he knew exactly where Anthony Kennedy was and what he would do, because Justice Kennedy was so crucial in the area of gay rights. So what happened in the end, in June 2017, is the court puts out two orders on a single day, and they were linked through the… Discussions that Justices uh, uh, Kennedy and Roberts had had, Kennedy signaled that he would be open to Jack Phillips' complaint and said, "Yes, you know, let's take this case." And the Chief said, without any kind of public record, "Okay, I'll provide the sixth vote to reverse the Arkansas Supreme Court and allow these, uh, you know, same-sex couple to have both names on a birth certificate."
0: Can you say, since there wasn't any public record, how you know that?
2: Of course not okay but I, but, but it, that one took me a long time to recreate because I'd gotten wind of it sort of around that time but then you have again going back to how there are only nine of them for goodness' sake so you have to you have to go back and go back and go back and since it was a case somewhat under the radar it was called Pavan versus Smith and it came down I almost know the exact date it was like something like June 27th uh, 2017 when they summarily reversed it, what I did was I kept asking justices about it. Did you know about this? Did you know about that? And that's how I also learned that sometimes other justices who might have been right there in the fray of like June with his or her colleagues might not have known exactly what went on between Kennedy
0: and the chief, but then I got it. Well, if, if this kind of... Uh, uh, negotiations is the best word, I was going to go back to your horse training, but negotiations has been very common historically for the court. You write, and this goes to the whole thesis of your book, that beginning in 2017 the pressure of Trump added another dimension. Some internal pacts were made precisely to avoid a look of politics. To some it breached the integrity of the bench, to others it was the only way to avoid the partisan abyss.
2: That is so true. And first of all, what you said is exactly right. There's always been these kinds of arrangements uh, where one justice seeks an outcome and has to have a little give and take. Everybody, you know, one of the discoveries I had when I did the book on the chief was how he had switched two votes in the Obamacare health care ruling. And uh, Justices Breyer and Kagan had also switched their votes on that one. And that one was. Interesting to ferret out, but what happened when Donald Trump came in in January of 2017? He put he put the judiciary on center stage and questioned its integrity and said, "Look at how political it is." Remember, remember all the things he had said about um, when he when he initially lost some cases uh, over his. Um, His travel ban on immigration—you know—that was one of the very first things he did seven days into his presidency—is to um, cut off uh, entry for people from key Muslim-dominated countries, and that case went through lower courts and. President Trump would say, "See you at the Supreme Court." You know, Supreme Court will rule for me was his implication, and indeed, the Supreme Court did rule for him then in um, 2018, saying upheld his uh, travel ban. But but all along, he was always acting as if I own the Supreme Court. I I can get what I want, and so that then you know, prompts the chief to be extra cautious about the signals that they might be giving about how political they are. And there were some cases that came to the court at this time uh, that were pretty, you know, they already have a a really um, uh, sensitive caseload of, you know, culture war issues, regulatory powers, uh, you know, things, abortion rights, to, to pull back on some issues to just say, not now, we're not going to hear this now, or the chief himself, especially during the period when he controlled with a very key fifth vote right in the middle of the court, he would he would edge over to the left just so uh, they wouldn't issue a ruling that seems so obviously political and was taking too much of a lunge to the rightward direction. This period, Susan, was between when Justice Kennedy stepped down in June of 2018 and October 2020, when Justice Amy Coney Barrett came on. That's when the chief, by virtue of, first of all, his stature as chief, but also being at the ideological center of the bench, was able to control just about everything. The minute Justice Barrett succeeds uh, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he no longer is at the center and he has five justices to his far right who can control
0: as we saw as we saw last june So, this is the Republican, or sorry, uh, this is the ideological supermajority, 6 3 on the court, the liberals versus the conservatives. And I I guess, uh, as you tell the story throughout the book, it's 40 years in the making that this has been a goal of conservatives. I wanted to go through, and I have some clips for some of these people, because you tell the story about the role that they played in getting to this point, uh, achieving the goal that they'd set out decades ago. First of all, you mentioned them, the Federal Society, headed by Leonard Leo. Mm -hmm. So, how powerful are they in creating not just the six three majority on the Supreme Court, but also in the lower courts? Okay, Federalist Society, founded in the early nineteen eighties, Justice Antonin
2: Scalia was a faculty sponsor when he was at the University of Chicago. It was founded by um, three conservative law students who felt that you know Ronald Reagan had just been elected. But there was still such a strong liberalism on law school campuses, and they wanted a, a debating society. You know that was sort of originally their modest idea of it, that could you know entertain conservative speakers, liberal speakers too, but also give a, a forum for conservative voices. And in the early 80s, it was it was a very uh, uh, powerful group that drew lots of high-profile speakers. I mentioned Antonin Scalia, Robert Bork was one of its first speakers, but then Stephen Breyer would show up at its uh, sessions, you know, from uh, somebody from the left. So they, they had an amalgam of voices. Starting, I'd say, in late 80s, early 90s, they were able to become much more of a money-raising machine, a networking machine. And Leonard Leo, who I think took over the, uh, as a leader in 1991-ish, 1991 or 92. It's in the book because I've talked to him at length about what he was able to do with this. I mean, I just think what the Federalist Society has done has been incredibly effective in terms of uh, getting lower court judges and young lawyers into the system and, you know, helping move them up helping get them positioned for the Supreme Court, and lo- they are looking for a certain type of jurist, and they have found that.
0: Is there a comparable organization on the progressive side? Uh,
2: not quite. Uh, the American Constitution Society that was founded after that has has tried to help uh, tap young lawyers and young judges t- to be people who could move up in the ranks, but they have not been as effective as the Federalist Society, in terms of single-mindedness, I mean that's that's the other thing. You know, Democrats and, and liberals often complain about their own ranks having, you know, real diversity within their own views. But the Federalist Society has been very consistent on, uh, I would say, both culture war issues and something really key and that was important to White House Counsel Don McGahn, is reducing uh, federal regulation.
0: I wanted to ask you, because uh, it gets a few paragraphs in your book, about uh, Senator Harry Reid in uh, 2016. We talked to him about his decision mm-hmm. in 2013 to invoke so-called nuclear option, which right. is eliminating the filibuster mm-hmm. for lower court judges. Here's uh, his response to that question a couple of years later.
3: Okay. We had about 100 vacancies in the courts generally, plus the D.C. Circuit. We, they were the Republicans were trying to get rid of the National Labor Relations Board. We couldn't get anybody to couldn't approve those spots. So the rule has changed, and so a couple of years ago we approved 98 judges, including filled the D.C. Circuit as it should have been, and saved the National Labor Relations Board. So that that precedent has been set. So I hope uh, that people of goodwill. And continue to try to work in a way that's um, good for America, good for this institution. But if they don't, a democracy is not 60 out of 100. A democracy is a majority, a real majority.
0: So Joe Piscubic, changing that long-standing Senate rule did what, because uh, Mitch McConnell said, you're going to regret this day, and in fact, He changed it for Supreme Court justices when he had
2: the chance. That's right. Mitch McConnell gets to say, you're going to rue this day a lot. He said that in 1987 when Bork was defeated, and he came back strong on that one. And he said that in, this was November 2013, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm remembering also. Yeah, so November 2013, I remember when they did that because the the republicans were in a minority but they were able to stall of course and it was the dc circuit this powerful stepping stone to the supreme court that president obama was not able to get like anybody on you know they kept blocking 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 finally i think you know one person got on but there were these vacancies and it was it's crucial and so Senator Reid changes the rules, and there was just so. M- I remember talking not just to uh, senators at the time, but even some justices uh, on the de- Democratic appointees, saying, "I don't know if they should have done this." You know, there was a wariness, but it was true gr- good luck. So, you know, I understand why they did that, but Mitch McConnell's threat was real, and sure enough, to get. Neil Gorsuch, through the Senate, when he was nominated to the Supreme Court after Mitch McConnell had blocked uh, President Obama's choice of Merrick Garland, uh, then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell extended that rule to Supreme Court justices. So all you need right now is a simple majority. and. And I remember at the time, again, there was a wariness among you know people on both sides, you know what kind of precedent is this creating. So Neil, Neil Gorsuch gets on to replace Antonin Scalia, that's kind of a wash. But then when you get to Amy Coney Barrett, uh, succeeding liberal Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that was no wash. That was such a difference. And some Democrats in the Senate thought, you know this would be the time that they would have wanted to be able to
0: filibuster, and obviously they couldn't. So you've mentioned him a few times. The next clip is of a White House counsel, first White House counsel for Donald Trump, Domegang. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's listen. In the confirmation process, the Democrats would raise this idea of the Federal Society as if it was some secret handshake club somewhere you know, uh, plotting God knows what. Um, I knew what we were plotting, but they did not. Um, and it really wasn't really wasn't that bad. Rule of law, you know, quaint notions like that. It's amazing how, even in a short 10-year period, how much is turned around. Uh, and I really give the credit to, to President Trump. I mean, he fully embraced uh, uh, what Federalist Society has done and uh, other, other like-minded organizations in D.C. Uh, we, it was not long ago where he was a long shot presidential candidate who who talked about judicial selection and talked about the need to maybe put out a list of the kind of people he would put on the Supreme Court. It had never been done in American politics. May never be done again. So two things in your book, you, he's described as a different kind of cat. And uh, also, that his role in transforming the federal bench cannot be overstated.
2: Absolutely. And the line, he is a different kind of cat, that's a line that Don McGahn used on President Trump. He, mm-hmm. descri- he described right. President Trump as a different kind of cat. And then I say, so was Don McGahn. Don McGahn is one disciplined individual, <laughs> single minded, disciplined. Uh, he got exactly what he wanted. He, first of all, you know I loved tracing his ascension with Donald Trump. You know, he he joined with him early on when a lot of lawyers were suspicious of Donald Trump, but Don McGahn was with him in New Hampshire and he was, you know, he saw something, he got it. He got. How people were going to respond to Donald Trump. He knew that. And then Don McGahn was really rewarded for that. He gets the White House counsel position. Now, it came with the baggage of the Mueller report and all that, the Mueller investigation. But in that position as White House counsel, he was able to, you know, really load up all these judicial appointees to the lower courts and then certainly to the Supreme Court. You know, he, he, He was as as responsible as anyone for those three appointees. And Brett Kavanaugh was an old pal of his. And when the going got tough for Brett Kavanaugh, he just really hung in there with them. And even though he had gone from the he had left the White House counsel's office, you were right to say that he was the first White House counsel, but not the only. Uh, He had left by the time Amy Coney Barrett was nominated in 2020. But Don McGahn had uh, had a very strong hand in selecting her for the Seventh Circuit when she was nominated back in 2017, and even sat behind uh, Judge Barrett as she
0: was there for her confirmation for the Seventh Circuit. The one other contributing factor to the 6-3 that I wanted to ask you about is Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You have a few chapters on her final years and Mm -hmm. ultimately her, her death during the Trump administration. But the reality is, as you report, there was some romancing, we think, going on during the Obama administration (laughs) for her to retire, uh, which she obviously did not do. But uh, how much, when you look at where the the court is today, do you say if she had done that, it would be still a 5-4 court the other direction? How responsible is she for that? Well, she is. She is. And um, I got a tip in
2: 2013-14 that President Obama had invited her to lunch. I think was in, he invited her to lunch in um, summer of 2013 just the two of them to the White House and oh, she told you know an amazing story about what it was like to even go there what they were serving and how the president ate so fast and she had hardly finished her soup when they were over you know like she gave a lot of good details about it but I said do you think he was fishing to find out your retirement plans because I found out later that he indeed was and she said no I think he just invited me because he likes me and I like him. She did not feel the pressure. She was aware, certainly, of the pressure, she, but she was 80 years old. She was 80 years old in 2013 when this occurred. Um, you and know. had
0: had cancer already at that yeah,
2: point. Yeah, oh, yeah, because she, her cancer, she had had cancer beginning in 1999, then 2009, and then by the time we got to 2013, she hadn't gotten the lung cancer. That appears in late 2018. I've got all my dates right. Yeah, so she, but she had had serious, serious cancer, including pancreatic cancer that she had beaten in 2009, which was in itself quite a feat. But she wasn't going to go anywhere. She wasn't going to go. And I think part of it is also that she, like many people out in America, thought that Donald Trump wasn't going to be president, that Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016, so she only had to hold on like three more years when she would be just 86. Turns out, of course, Donald Trump wins, and she's got to hold on for four more years. And look at how close she got. She dies on September 18th of 2020, just weeks before the November general
0: election. So you also have an interview that uh, with Justice Breyer in the summer of 2021 yeah. up in New Hampshire, <laughs> yeah. and you also discussed his retirement plans and. Uh, he again loath to do so. Thought he could continue. I guess my question is, what is it about the Supreme Court and these justices in their eighties that makes them want to hang on so much to these positions? Oh, isn't it true? You know, I, I refer to Clarence Thomas
2: and Samuel Alito as being only eighty. It's like the only institution only I can 70s? refer to. Seventies. Seventies. Yeah, yeah, they're exactly right. It's like the only institution you can refer to somebody as only seventy, and like they are the teenagers. You know, so. Um, when I had that interview with Stephen Breyer, he was already like, what, 83? was Yeah, it? exactly. And he but he knew then that he was going to get out before Joe Biden lost the presidency or the Democrats lost the Senate. So he, you know, he knew he had to. In fact, I think now, especially because of what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, no one on either side who wants to be succeeded by a like-minded justice is going to take that kind of risk. And he, the one thing he was taking a risk with is, um, you probably remember at the time, the Senate was controlled by Democrats, but only by one vote. You know, so that was that was a little bit chancy. But then he, he obviously within, let's see, that that interview was in July of um, 21. Yeah, and then he announced in January of 2022. So. He he risked it a little bit, but not too much. But you know, just as John Paul Stevens didn't leave until he was ninety, and he was in such great shape at ninety. So I think in part it's that uh, it's a job that sort of must contribute to good physical health at least. And um, uh, I think I think the routine of it and the
0: power of it is one that uh, it's hard for justices to say no to. So let's move on to Dobbs, which is sure. really the culmination of this book. Uh, the Dobbs just briefly explain what what the Dobbs case was about.
2: Yeah, it uh, just up front, it, it tested a uh, ban on abortion that Mississippi legislatures the legislators had passed that said that after 15 weeks of pregnancy a woman could not uh, get an abortion. And it ca- oh man this was so intertwined with the timing of Justice Ginsburg's death. They had appe- uh, lower courts even very conservative lower court judges. Judges had struck it down, said, you know, this conflicts with Roe v. Wade. And if Justice Ginsburg had been alive, that that appeal would have never had a shot. And it had first come up in early September to the Supreme Court. That's when all the filings were in. And if the justices had actually considered it, they probably would have rejected the appeal just based on Roe v. Wade, which said that government could not interfere with a woman's Choice of ending a pregnancy before viability. That's before a fetus could live outside the womb. And that generally is at like about 23 weeks. So obviously the Mississippi law would would conflict with that. But Mississippi gets its filing in and it comes right as Justice Ginsburg has died and Amy Coney Barrett succeeds her. And um, so the justice is put on hold that petition for month after month after month, and in May, 2021, once Justice Barrett has settled in, they agree to take this case. But what they say is, they say the question presented that we are going to hear this on is only whether uh, the viability standard of Roe should persist, you know, or should uh, can, can a 15-week ban survive? But During the course of negotiations on that, hearing oral arguments, and then the related Texas abortion dispute coming up there, five justices, including the three Trump appointees, decide, no, we're going to take this opportunity to roll back entirely, Roe versus Wade. So no line drawing about when a state can or can't uh, put a ban in place, a state can put a ban in place right from the get-go. What do you know about the Chief Justice's aims with regard to Roe? The chief has not favored abortion rights over the years, certainly not. He's voted against abortion rights at different points, but in this particular case he did not want his colleagues to go as far as they did. He did not want the court to fully consider Roe v. Wade, and he kept saying, "Remember what we took this case to decide. We took this case to decide only whether the the, the viability line, the viability firewall should survive. And he he kept saying, you know, there'll be a time and place to fully confront Roe. This is not the time or
0: place. Then on May second, 2022, Politico published the draft opinion by Justice Alito. How did that change everything? It changed everything. You know how so
2: many of us who are in the Supreme Court orbit will remember exactly where we were when that happened, because it, it changed the negotiations behind the scenes. It changed how you know, the Supreme Court justices regarded the press. It changed how the justices themselves regarded each other. New level of distrust. You know, I felt like I had already been documenting some distrust and tensions among the justices, but um, this this leak really exacerbated all that. And what it did in the end was it it shut down whatever progress the chief was going to make. And i I'm, I'm really torn on. Um, how persuasive the chief might've been to try to lure Justice Kavanaugh to this more middle ground position on this court. Um, I consider, I, I always would say, you know, I'd never count out the chief. I think of the chief as highly persuasive. He's very smart. He's got very good political instincts as well as, you know, obviously legal expertise here. But, um, once that leak was out there and it was so clear to the American public how they had divided five to four and exactly how strongly worded that 98-page draft was, Samuel Alito, who is the author, basically said N- there was never a right to abortion in the Constitution. There was this kind of privacy right has been you know, made up and we're going to get rid of it in no uncertain terms. It was so strongly and harshly worded that I actually thought that Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett might have hesitated
0: signing on, but they did in the end. The vote that was leaked was 5 1 3. The Chief Justice was the one.
2: Well, we didn't know. Um, the five, it was, what was leaked was a majority opinion. And I had known from my own reporting that the Chief wasn't on it, and certainly the three liberals at the time, Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and uh, Kagan, w- were not on it. So, And you need to have a majority, you need five. So that's how it was cleared. Us who it, was on
0: in the end when the opinion was published. Where was the chief?
2: What did he? The want? chief was in the middle. And in fact, this is something I I have always characterized the Dobbs decision as five four because I always felt the most important ruling here was the one that completely ended Roe. That's what was really new and different, rolling back nearly fifty years of reproductive rights. Some outlets characterized it as six three because they they weren't sure how to put the chief. What the chief said was he would uphold the Mississippi law, the ban on abortion. But I thought, you know, who cares? you know, a, a ban at fifteen weeks, that was that was going to be important. That was going to be consequential. It would have ended the viability rule. But what was really sensational
0: was ending completely Roe v. Wade. We have a clip of Justice Alito talking about the leak. Let's watch okay, this. Yeah.
3: It was a grave betrayal of trust by somebody. And it uh, was a shock because nothing like that had happened in the past. So it certainly changed the atmosphere at the court for the remainder of, of last term. The leak also made those of us who were thought to be in the majority in support of overruling Roe and Casey targets for assassination because it gave people a rational reason to think they could prevent that from happening by killing one of us. And we know that a, a man has been charged with attempting to kill Justice Kavanaugh. It's a pending case, so I won't say anything more.
0: What did the leak do to the court?
2: Well, they did have to put immediately put up Barriers. I mean, people. People ran down that that night, that faithful night. You know, lots of people ran down to the court to demonstrate, not to not to take violent action. None was reported in that moment, but um, to demonstrate there. And then people started having demonstrators at the the justices started having demonstrators at their houses. And in fact, there were there have been demonstrations also at at John Roberts' home, uh, which is near Brett Kavanaugh's, and at Brett Kavanaugh's also. But he's absolutely right that um, that there was a man who was arrested for trying to, to a man who was arrested who had come from California who was caught near Brett Kavanaugh's home who said he was coming to kill him. So Justice Alito is exactly right about what happened with
0: Justice Kavanaugh, and they conducted an investigation led by the marshal of the court. Yes, uh, certified by Michael yes. Chertoff, Found <laughs> yeah. found nothing. Is it true that they never it, they never questioned the justices themselves? Uh, it was very casual
2: conversations. No, they didn't question the justices the way they they questioned employees and and the law clerks at the time. You know, I would love to know how this how that document left the building. I suspect that you know there were. It, it could have changed hands before it ended up with Politico. I'm not sure Politico even knows how it first left the building. I just, I know about as much about how it happened today as I did on May 2nd. And I know a lot about how they operate inside. I do know they were very sloppy with uh, the number of people who had access to this draft document. I know they were sloppy with burn bags. I know they were, they, they, they constantly let their guard—you know, for a place that is all about the secrecy and didn't even want to tell me how many votes it takes to summarily reverse something. You know, I had to find that out from, you know, clerks of the justice confirming it. You know, they were were loose with documents like this. So it could have gotten out of that building in so many different ways. And, you know, obviously someone knew the potential here. uh, And, you know, given what it did do, Many folks have complained that it might have been a conservative clerk or justice who wanted to lock things in, or a liberal or liberal clerk or justice who was enraged. But knowing how most clerks operate and the justices, I actually don't think it was one of those key players. I think that those people do, despite their anger at each other, despite their, their um, tensions over this particular case, I don't think... Justices or law clerks would have resorted to that, but it's a big building. They've got a couple hundred other employees there. And this also was during the time of COVID when things were operating Yeah, it was, it was on the aftermath of COVID. So, you know, they weren't, you know, the building didn't have a lot of people in it. You know, they
0: had a lot of employees, but visitors were restricted in many ways. So let's talk, we have about six minutes left, about sure. the court post-COVID, yeah. excuse me, post-Dobbs. Um, first of all, from a from a legal standpoint, what does the Dobbs decision fundamentally do in terms of testing other constitutional rights? Well, that's still to be determined, and I can tell you what some of the justices have
2: said. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a, a, a concurring opinion. He had signed on with Samuel Alito's decision, but he also wrote separately to say, I think we should reconsider Obergefell versus Hodges, the 2015 same sex marriage case. I think I should, that we should consider other uh, substantive due process cases. This is Clarence Thomas saying that to his colleagues. He wrote alone, no one else signed it. And Justice Alito wrote in his majority opinion that this case is only about abortion. Abortion is different because it takes fetal life. Uh, this case should not go further. The liberals were more of the mind of Clarence Thomas in this regard, saying, look at what this can open the door to. And you probably noted that um, I use at the very beginning of my book, a line from the liberal dissenters, no one should have confidence that this majority is finished with its work. So there's kind of a warning in the air, both from Clarence Thomas on the right and uh,
0: three of the justices on the left, that this could be taken further. And did. Dobbs changed the Chief Justice's leverage in the court.
2: Well, he had already it, it revealed the, the loss of leverage of the chief. It revealed that because he so desperately wanted the court not to go that far. so it revealed it and now we, we know and he's lost in a few other a few other cases where the five to his right have gone further. but I have to say the one thing I, I always wanted to make clear about Chief Justice John Roberts, He's no moderate, he's no moderate. He's still on the far right on things like you know racial remedies and voting rights and uh, religion, lowering the wall of separation between church and
0: state. It's just that in this area, he just did not want to go so far so fast. And stats that underscore that, this is from a New York Times story that I found. No justice was in the court's majority more often than Chief Justice Roberts. 95% of the cases the court decided and 93% of it's non-unanimous decisions. So that underscores he really is six. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know,
2: there's it, it, so many people wrote stories about how he's lost control of the court. And I would say that it, he lost control of the court in this you know, case. That's the defining case of his generation. But he still is. He has a majority
0: to do a lot of what he wants to do. And what about the liberal justices? We have got three minutes left. What will their role be in, in a, in a supermajority court?
2: Well, they don't have the bargaining power. When there were four, It's, you know, Susan, it's amazing how much the ch- one vote can make such a difference. They had so much more power when there were four of them, because all they had to do was pick off one from the other side. But once you have to pick off two, there's enough safety in numbers on the on the right side that there's not so much pressure to come over. And just to circle back really quickly to something about the Federalist Society, I found a quote that um, Justice Scalia had said when he was uh, a faculty advisor to the Federalist Society about the power of numbers, the power of like-minded voices. And that's why they founded the Federalist Society. But here, when you have six justices there's, there's more comfort in those like-minded voices than when they are so narrowly divided 5-4. So the liberals have uh, an opportunity to maybe try to work some sort of um, something at the middle, but they need to do it with two of the justices, somebody beyond the chief, or they can just loudly dissent, loudly dissent, and hope that it gets enough public attention that it puts pressure on the court or it puts pressure on senators who, um,
0: who confirm the members of the judiciary in, in future situations. The book is Nine Black Robes Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. Author Joan who has been covering the court for a few decades now yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, and knows much about how it operates. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us. Thanks, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.